Let me ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. I know that the plan was to be in 1 Peter again today, and I had debated earlier about that after the week that we've all had, and I don't certainly intend to delve into current events as the text for the morning, but there just seems to be in our world such a constant upheaval that there's always something that the Word of God has to say to the people of God to strengthen them and to encourage them and to help them through those difficult times. And I think that's the Lord's wisdom. It's certainly His omniscience and knowing what we need and how, how we need that. I think another proof of that is the book of Psalms, which most people regard as books of and collections of really songs of praise and worship. And yet when that comes to the, the current evangelical mind in America, as you've heard me say before, that, that means something happy and vibrant and just on top of the world. And yet, <clears throat> upon further review, as they might say, half of those psalms are given as lament, as dealing with, and God giving us an outlet to deal with hard things and hard times. And so, God in His grace certainly takes note of His people, where they are and when they are there, and seeks to minister to us through the Word of God in those ways. And so, it's always, it has been a quite the struggle just, Honestly, over the last year, how do you, um, you know, continue to try to work sequentially through books, which I am still convinced is the best way to handle preaching in a normal circumstance. But then there are those times and it feels like we've had a fair more than our fair share, a lifetime's worth of those particular one off sermons, if you will, that are still can be expositional, but yet need to address a specific time. Well, that was on my mind this week, and then when the weather rolled in yesterday, and acknowledging the fact that so many people would not be able to be here in person this morning, I decided to go ahead and postpone the message I had planned for First Peter to continue working through that this morning with the hope of speaking to you from Acts chapter 17 this morning and to fortify you again with something that I believe the Lord would have us to be not just once or twice or three or four times in our lifetime reminded of, but really regularly, regularly to drink deeply from who God is and his attributes. And I want to look at two of those specifically this morning. I want to look at Paul's message to the Athenians. And I want us to notice a couple of particular areas that Paul causes these unregenerate pagans to be forced to deal with. He's not teaching a theology class. Paul is not in a seminary somewhere. Paul's not talking to pastors. Paul is talking to pagans. And if pagans need to know these things, how much more do the people of God need to know these things? And yet, how sadly missing these massive truths are from our regular spiritual diet. And how much more we need to be intentional about putting them back in. And so look at Acts chapter 17 this morning with me, beginning at verse 22. You're you're familiar with this particular passage. Paul has entered Athens. He sees all of the false gods that are being worshipped. He is on Mars Hill. He sees at the end of the row of gods being worshipped the catch-all god known as the unknown god. And we'll just throw that statue and that god in there for good measure in case we missed one along the way somewhere. And so Paul stops and he preaches these words to them. So Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of the Areopagus And he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. 
For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who this God is. You're not going to have to have that inscription anymore. Take it off. You can put up very specific truths about this God now. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim this to you. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath, and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if, perhaps, they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again on this matter. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, help us to be nourished and built up in who you are this morning, just as Paul so boldly proclaimed to these people on Mars Hill. Father, we don't want to be ignorant. If a substantial message on the nature and character of God can be preached to a lost and dying world. A message rich in theology. And people can hear it and by hearing it be saved. Then certainly, Father, that power is needed in your church. We must know who you are. And so guide and instruct our minds, enrich us to know you, our God, this morning and transform our life by a knowledge of who you are. For we pray this in your son's name. Amen. One thing that when you go back to the book of the Psalms, that you realize that's true of David's life, is that what gets him through the difficulties of life, whatever they may have been for David, whatever they may be for you and I. What gets him through is a knowledge of who God is. Not just a surface knowledge, but an experiential knowledge that is rooted in the law of God, in the word of God, as David received it. And for us, how much more for us, the entire revealed canon of Scripture is at our fingertips. How much more should we know about who God is? We, brothers and sisters, are without excuse to know God. Theology, the the study of God, the science of knowing God, ought to be the the great joy and delight of every Christian. Someone once said to me that theology was dead and dry and boring. And that saddened me 
infinitely. How can you say that the study of God is boring? What will you tell me next? That the study of your wife or your husband is boring? That the study of your favorite athlete or icon is boring? That the study of whatever is exciting to you is boring? I mean, how can you say that that God is boring? And and I, I grieve because I think so much of what is wrong in the church today, is that's what people think. You come to Jesus. You get a little fire insurance. You know you're not going to hell. And beyond that, it's all the rest of it's boring. Don't trouble me with the details. That seems to be the attitude of American Christianity. And we are going to pay the piper for that. The church will fail miserably if... She does not build herself up in a knowledge of God and not just a sterile learning, you understand, but an intimate relationship of knowing. There's knowing and then there's knowing. And we're talking about the second one this morning. To know the living God. Brothers and sisters, just in the the, the different circumstances that this Lord's Day throws on us, I feel somewhat more akin to a private family sermon <laughs> than what might otherwise be the feel of our gathering today. Like the old Puritans who would preach to their own families or have the pastor over to preach sermons just to their family. It, it, that sort of intimate communication that I want to have with you today that that causes you to think and causes you to long to know God. Because the time to gain knowledge that will see us through the storm is before the storm. The, The time to know God is before all of that strikes. That knowledge will be refined in the storm. It will be sharpened. It will be honed. You will understand more. It will be made personal for you in trials and in the storm. But you must gain that knowledge of God. You must know Him before those situations in life present themselves. And I would again just refer you to the Psalms of Lament. When David has his back against the wall... David is not asking the question, God, who are you? He begins to tell God who he already knows that he is. In other words, David knows it so that under duress, David can rehearse that. It's already driven into his mind. He may waver, he may struggle, but the the end, and it's consistent throughout all of the Psalms of, the, of Lament, with the exception of one, David turns the corner and says, wait a minute. This is the situation on the ground as it really is, but God, this is who you really are. And he is able then to process and to work through and to push through the trial, whatever it may have been in David's life and the other psalmist's life that contributed to the psalms. And it will be the same for us. The more we know of God, it doesn't mean that we won't be hit with hard times. And it certainly doesn't mean that we won't feel hard times. But it does mean that in the midst of hard times, knowing God will turn that around for us. And we can have hope. We can have joy. But I want you to consider this. And this is all by way of introduction. And then we'll dive into the text. The greatest works of God are these. Creation and redemption. Those are the two mighty acts of God that all of Scripture centers upon. And often, as in Acts chapter 17, you find those two woven together. How does Paul start his sermon? The God who made 
all the world and all things in the world, right? That's where he starts. And how does he end? Repent and believe in the one whom this God has sent. So those two great bookends of the human experience, the great works of God being creation and redemption, but in both of those acts, God's chief end in giving both the acts of creation physically and the acts of creation spiritually in the new birth is that his creation and his creatures may know him listen to the words of jeremiah chapter 31 and and you this is one of those pivotal chapters that you should put in your mind and know what's in this chapter this chapter is the promise of the new covenant to come in jesus christ this is a watershed moment in world history When God says to Israel, there is going to be a redeemer. And he gives the new covenant to them in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. He says this, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. What is what is at the heart of redemption? What is at the heart of the promise of the new covenant? That they would know God. That they would draw near to God. That they would experience God. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What does God want in redemption? God's chief concern is that we would know Him. And in knowing him, glorify him. To love him with all of our heart. The same is true of physical creation. Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. What does creation want you to do? It wants you to know there is a God. It wants to testify that you can know him. That he has graciously revealed himself to us. That those are the two great bookends of human history. Then brothers and sisters, we need to sit up and take notice. And spend our life knowing God. The more that the people of God understand this, the more immovable we will be. Because we not only know him intellectually, but we know him by relationship and experientially. And the more faithful then we will be in our worship and the more faithful and bold we will be in our evangelism. Just like Paul on Mars Hill. And if there is ever a day for the church to refine and purify her worship and be strengthened and made more bold in her evangelism to preach Christ, today's the day. What we are facing in our world is not A health crisis. It is not an economic crisis. It is not a political crisis. It is a spiritual crisis. And if we don't grasp that, and if we don't grasp that, we will never grasp the tools of how to deal with that, then we will be hopeless. But we do have the tools. The tools are in knowing God. And knowing specific things about God. That, sh- that just cause you to be a lion among the wolves. The church of Jesus Christ needs great conviction. We're, you know, <laughs> convictions are marked out from preferences. Preferences go away when the sun gets hot. When pressure comes. But conviction will drive you through the storm. Conviction causes you to persevere. And what we need is great conviction of who God is. We need to be convinced. Not just know it. You need to be convinced. I need to be convinced. We need to be serious about that mission of knowing Him. And only when we know Him can we make Him known. Only when we know Him can we make Him known.
Now, I'm afraid that that saying has been made severely reductionistic. That's been reduced to no, no, a simple prayer to pray and then just go on about your life. No, to know Christ. To know God. To, to, to never tire of knowing God. And by the way, you'll never, ever reach the bottom of who God is. That's why our God is so amazing. You know, the Greek poets, yeah, fine, they got their gods. You, you finish reading the book about them, that's it. That's all there is to know. Our God is an endless depth of wonderful, glorious, fill in the blank. And there's no end to the knowledge of who He is. And so we can spend our life. We've not drunk deeply at the well of who God really is as a whole in, a, in the American church. We really haven't. We're, we have done really well, and we have excelled at telling people who we think God is. But we've not really plumbed the depths of who God is. Make sense? It's a big difference. Well, I like to think of God as, and as one preacher said, when somebody says that, the response is, thank you for telling us so much about yourself. Because that's what we do. We project onto God what we want rather than what Scripture says. And so we need to build our life upon who God is. When we, when, when we do what I just said and just preferred, I like to think of God as this, or I only, this is what I like to think about when I think about God, or I like this part of God but not that part of God. We're no different than the Athenians on Mars Hill. We've taken God and we've just created little segments of God that we like and we've set those up as idols. Rather than worshiping the whole of the triune Godhead. And I want you to look closely and examine this morning two attributes of God that Paul places in this sermon. Again, not to theologians, not to pastors. This is not, you know, the Mars Hill's pastors conference this is rank paganism paul doesn't go well i need to soft pedal this because they just won't get it this is too deep for them that you know i need to you know go with something fun and cutesy and you know just bottom shelves kind of stuff so let's get to the lowest common denominator that will that will cause me to make more friends well i don't know Look at the end of the passage. Some laughed. Okay, that's fine. Some said, we want to hear more. Great. And some said, we believe right now. See, God was already doing the work. You don't have to dumb down your understanding of God. And, and, and parents here this morning and watching, we've got to give this to our kids. Our kids can absolutely grasp this. They can absolutely grow up knowing this. And wouldn't this be a great treasure to give our children? A God who is immovable. That they really can trust. Not just, you know, Jesus light. Substance. To challenge the most entrenched pagan thoughts of the day and here they are in, in mars hill no greater single example of that type of entrenchment than this and yet paul goes on and here's where paul chooses to get to dig in look at verse 24 the god who made the world and all things in it since he is lord that's not a title or just a name this is a position of action. This God has executive authority that is unimaginable in the rest of the world. This God has power unilaterally to do whatever He wants to do and no man can question Him. He is Lord. He is Master of heaven and earth. And does not dwell in temples made with man's 
hands. Listen, you didn't create him. You don't have the monopoly on him. He is bigger than you. Nor is he served with human hands. That is to say, sustained by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself, within himself, emphatic, he within himself, out of himself, gives to all people life and breath and all things. Why can our God be trusted Why must we trust our God this morning? We must because God is independent from all things. That is it. That is a crucial point about God. God needs nothing. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. God doesn't have to have our worship God doesn't need our nation. God doesn't need this world. He was just fine without it. In eternity past, He was still God. He never had a beginning. He never came into existence. And according to Jesus, in John chapter 17, there was perfect love being expressed among the Trinity before the worlds were ever created. God was just fine. The fact that he made anything is just a sheer act of grace. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And so here is this God who is outside of everything. Hear that, outside of everything. Let me ask you an honest question. Were you at any point discouraged, confounded, confused, frustrated, irritated, angry, fill in whatever negative emotion you can come up with during the past week. I was. And I'm still, to be honest. I don't have an answer. Hey, you need to, you need to, be thinking this way, and you no, you need to be thinking that way, and it's like, okay, I, I, you know what? I don't know how to answer you. This thing has gotten so off the tracks that it's literally indescribable. You can't make sense of it. It's totally irrational, and it will drive you to the funny farm. And your faith, if your faith is in any way tied to the events of this world, you will lose your faith. You will. So what do we need? We need a God who is outside all of this mess. Who needs nothing. Who's dependent on no one. No thing. And that's who we have. That's who Paul goes to these pagan people and he says, let me tell you about the God you don't know. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your altars. He doesn't need your big, you know, beautiful um, structures. You know, he doesn't need the Acropolis. He doesn't need any of that. He is outside. Do, do, you, do you hear what I'm saying? He made the dirt you built this on. He made the rocks that you chiseled into the, to the statues. He, he made the marble that you built the columns out of. He gave you the smarts to do it. He, he made the wood that you fashioned into the handle for that chisel over there. You, he doesn't need anything. In fact, everything comes from him. And that's how he starts his evangelistic message. Brilliant. He says this is who God is. This is who you don't know, but you need to know. You must know. We need to know our God is outside of this world. And he won't be shaken by anything that happens in this world. I mean, whenever the Lord decides to end this world, it will end. And from the very moment he spoke in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, 
till that day in eternity is just a little dash. That's all. It's just a little dash of time in between two sets of numbers. And that's, that's the significance. Of, but he's outside of all that. He's created time. He is eternally outside of everything when he talks to Moses. And, and don't think Moses in Exodus chapter 3 is not in a crisis moment. He is. I mean, he has just fled Egypt because he is a murderer. He is a wanted man. And God says to Moses, hey Moses, go back to the people who want to put you to death because you're a murderer. And don't just go back. Tell them you want the release, listen, of the very core of their economy. All the slaves of Egypt, the Israelites. I mean, we kind of have a, a whitewashed Sunday school version of that. Moses says to God, or, you know, God says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I don't think we understand what Moses was asking. That was monumental. We want everything out of your country that has made your country what it is. And who's saying that? A convicted murderer. No wonder Moses doesn't want to go, right? And Moses says, um, exactly what am I supposed to say when I go back? Who am I supposed to say sent me? Because that is a tall order. What does God say? You tell them that I am sent you. What is unique about that name? It is the name that signifies that God is eternally outside and separated from His creation. I am the God who needs nothing. I created you. I'm the eternal one. Go tell them that, Moses. When you make your big request, just lay that out there. Again, not to a theologically trained man, not to a man who understood all the intricacies of theology. He is going to a pagan king, most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, who knows nothing of the Hebrew God, just like Paul in Athens. And what does he begin with? The independence of the aseity, and the eternality of God. This is why you're going to listen to me. Because this God is outside of everything. He's beholding to nothing. One theologian said this, all being is contained in Him. Just like Paul says, everything that moves or has life or breath, it comes from Him. All being is contained in Him. He is a boundless ocean of being. God is, and He's separate from, and He's outside of, and unaffected by this world. Bernard of Clairvaux said, If you have said of God that He is good, great, blessed, wise, or any other such quality, it is summed up in a single word. He is. Just like He says to Moses, I am. Indeed, for him to be is to be all these things. Even if you add a hundred such qualities, you have not gone outside the boundaries of his being. Having said them all, you have not added anything to him. Having said none of them, you have not subtracted anything from him. He simply is. We cannot add to, we cannot take away from. He is massively independent and outside Brothers and sisters, let your heart rest in that this week. I don't know what the rest of this year is going to hold. I really don't. I didn't know what 2020 was going to hold in the first few weeks of January last year. But wow, what a roller coaster. But, but this I do know. The church of Jesus Christ needs to go back to that which never changes. And not be built upon things that can be taken from us or things that can 
cause us to fall away when they're no longer available or when we can no longer do these things. But when we are built on him who is outside, independent of, not dependent on anything, and is never changing, those two truths go hand in hand. Then brothers and sisters, we will just keep moving. We'll keep going. Undeterred. Unafraid. Convinced. Convicted. Joyful. People who know their God. What makes God independent? What what makes Paul be able to stand in the face of these, these very educated and religious people who no doubt mock him? Why is he able to say that? Because he's building upon a mountain of evidence. Why don't you just consider a few of these, and this is somewhat of a just a jet tour, a, a 35,000 foot view of why we can say that God is independent and why we can rest in that and have joy in that and why that is comforting and assuring and reaffirming to us. He exists and all things exist through him. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. But before any of the, God didn't become God when all of this came into existence. And he says, now I've got something to rule over. Now I'm God. That's how, that's how human kings work. That's not how divine king works. You know, it's. the old contradiction of Islam with the doctrine of the Trinity. Allah is one God. And He's been eternally gracious and merciful and loving. Well, if He was the only one who existed, who did He love? Well, how do you know He was loving? You can't love, you can't say you're loving if there's nothing to, to demonstrate that love, right? So, so he couldn't have been eternally the same. He had to have something then to be created for him to be all that. No, 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 they, they pushed back on that. Well, then there has to have been a trinity for him to express love within from eternity past. Well, no, no, no. So the, the age-old contradiction. But before the mountains were born, before the earth was formed, he's still God in all of his attributes. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. That's because He's outside of all of this. He's supreme Lord, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He doesn't need to do those things. Man, what a contrast. I can't tell you the number of times the, phrase, the little phrase bought off has occurred in my mind the last few months. That's not our God. He's outside of it. He's independent. He's, you can't buy him. He just is what he is. How different than human religion. How different than human Government, how different than anything human. Joshua 3.13, And it shall come to pass when the souls of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, outside of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from it shall stand in one heap. He is supreme because he's outside. He can command nature. He depends on nothing. But he is the source of all things and to him all things flow back in eternal praise. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. How does He do that? Because He's outside of that. Everything that is flows from Him. He's the source of all things. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am He and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Isaiah 45, 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know me from the rising to the setting of the sun. Remember what I said earlier, that's God's chief work and all he does is that his creation might know him. Just a quick aside to that. What's wrong with the world? What went wrong with America? I'll tell you what went wrong. Starting with Adam and Eve and on up through until Jesus comes. What went wrong is that Romans chapter 1 happened. Although they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God. But became futile in their thinking and served the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That's your problem. You did not know God. And everything that he has done is giving that men may know him. Isaiah 45 verse 5. Isaiah 45 verse 6. Again, that all may know me from the rising to the setting of the sun. That there is no no one else beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being. And Christian creating calamity, he says. You hear that? God creates calamity. Why does he do that? For judgment. Upon people who reject the knowledge of him. That's why Paul is on Mars Hill pleading with these people to know God. Because if you don't, God is going to send a calamity upon you. This is who you're dealing with. God is sovereign over all things. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Outside of everything. He's in heaven. Does whatever he pleases. And whether or not men know it, they jump at his command. Say, well, but not everybody follows God. He didn't say they would. But he did say he orders everything and creates everything. Um, Do you suppose Pharaoh did what he did? Because that's really what Pharaoh... No, God specifically says, I harden Pharaoh's heart. I cause Pharaoh to do what he's doing. When we look around at the world around us going crazy, just know this, God's in control of that crazy too. When we look at it, we say, this is demonic. Just remember this. Like Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He created him. He owns him. He controls him. He's on a short leash. When God says he comes, he comes. When God says it's over, it's over. He is outside of all. He's above all of this. And ironically, one of the most wicked kings who has ever lived learned this lesson the hard way. His name was Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He thinks he's high and mighty. He thinks he is good stuff. He thinks there's no one bigger, badder, or better. And God says, I'll... I hope you learn, Nebuchadnezzar, since, since, you know, it's like I said last week, we can do this the right way or the wrong way, the easy way or the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar chose door number two. God says, out to the field. The nails grow, the hair grows. He's on all fours. He's eating like a wild animal. And God so breaks him and humbles him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, who's your God? Nebuchadnezzar, Who is God? Nebuchadnezzar, what do you say? And Nebuchadnezzar comes back to the palace and he doesn't come back and say, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. He says this, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will. In the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand Or say to him, what have you done? No one. Because he's outside of all of that. He's over all of that. He is dependent upon none of that. You know what it is to be dependent? When you're dependent upon someone, that changes you, doesn't it? There are certain people that all of us have in our life that we would never just really unload what we really think. Your boss might be one of them. Why? You like your paycheck. You don't don't just open up and say everything. 
there's certain people that you learn how to exercise some level of discernment of doing or not doing certain things. Right? God's not like that. He's outside. He doesn't need the paycheck. He doesn't need the relationship. He doesn't need anything. And yet in human, our experiences, we tiptoe, we, we soft pedal. We, at some level, everybody does it in the human experience. Why? We're dependent. God's not. He does what he pleases. As Paul says to them in Acts 17, so it is said again in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, God establishes and ordains everything, even the death of his own son. Verse 23 of Acts 2, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He did this. Why does he do it? For Samuel 12, 22, for his own glory. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. For himself. For himself. Christian, why did God create us physically and then again spiritually? Not to be a force for this, that, or the other, but to be a people for God. To be his own inheritance. To be his treasure. That we might reflect him who has called us and saved us. Job 22, verse 2. Again, he needs nothing. He's outside of, he's over. Verse 2 of Job 22. Can a vigorous man be of use to God or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Or profit if you make your way perfect? In other words, are you going to sway God? No. God's not swayed. God can't be bought. God can't be influenced. That's comforting, isn't it? That's a rock. So there is one person who will always be right. Always do what is right. Cannot be bought or swayed or pushed or shoved or threatened. Or, or in a moment of weakness, do the wrong thing. No. As Paul says in verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since it is he himself who gives life to all and breath to all things. I, I guess if there was one thing I, I wish I could scream across our country this morning, it's that truth. You, you, you'll never get Jesus until you get God. I mean, at best you'll come up with some moral theory of atonement like Charles Finney did. Some governmental, where Jesus is just kind of a good example and we'll throw him onto the end of the pantheon of gods in Athens. But I'd like the world to know. I'd like our country to know. He's in need of nothing. And everything that is has come from him. Therefore, it must conform to his standard. And it does not. But there is a way of repentance. Just as Paul enumerates to these people. Hey, you have denied him long enough. You have denied these cardinal truths about who he is. You have violated God himself. Therefore, having overlooked the times of your ignorance. Okay, America, you've done this long enough. Okay, world, you've done this long enough. And God has, as Paul would say to the Jews in Romans chapter 2, don't look at this and go, well, then God must be approving of it. He hasn't destroyed me yet. Don't get that kind of sass. Paul says in Romans 2, you are building up for yourself wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. It's going to get real bad for you because you have mocked his patience by not repenting, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has been patient with you. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. You hear that? 
It's not just enough to say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Throw him up there with the rest of the guys. Throw him out there as a little fire in church. He says, you must repent and turn to him. You must forsake the nonsense of your ways and acknowledge God as He is. And all that He has created and all that He is and has done. He is the beginning and ending of all things. He, I promise you, He will bury all of His enemies. He will see and stand over the grave of every one of his enemies. No one outlives him. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I was here before you. I will be here after you. Praise God. Praise God. We may die. We may go away. But our God never goes away. Therefore, our life never goes away. Our hope never goes away. We are unchanged. But for his enemies, that is inherently bad news. That's why Paul, out of compassion for his enemies, preaches them, you must repent and turn to him. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the linchpin of history, isn't it? And in that, brothers and sisters, in that, in that truth, in those realities, there is one more that Paul hints at here but doesn't get into as much as other parts of Scripture do, but nevertheless it is here, and that is the fact not only is God overall, outside of all, independent of all, He is unchanging in doing that. So for us who know Him, for us who have been called and have turned to Him for salvation. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our high priest will not fail us. But for those who are running from God, you will continue to run from God until you drop dead and He buries you. Because He will not change. He will not yield. He will not give up. He will not Mutate in who he is. He, as our confession says, is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, holy, wise, most free, most absolute, working all things to the counsel of his own and immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Praise God. God has always worked this way. God will always work this way. So many of our problems is that we see God as small. People are big and God is small. People are big and God is small. People are big and God is small. That's our problem. That is our problem. Man has become the center of everything and not God. I've recently with a new year looking at our situation as a church you know in a lot of different great ways I mean, it's an exciting time where do we go physically where do we go spiritually where do we go as people seeking to grow in the knowledge of God and trying to chart the course for that to be able to communicate the core of our vision as a church of who we are has to be this we are people who know god that has to be our high school not to be a big church not to be known as this church or that church or have this or we do that or we have no, no we just have to know who god is that's of supreme importance everything else may be well and fine in its proper, but that has to be the vision of all of you and, and of me and everybody. We want to know you, God. That's the vision. Well, in five years, you know, we want to be running 500 and have a building that seats 5,000. Give me a break. That belongs in the CEO, CEO's boardroom. Not in the pew. 
place of the pews to be on our knees saying, God, show us how big you are. Show us how great you are. Show us how unchanging you are. Because God, everything around us feels like it's about to be changed in such a way that it's jerked out from under us and all that's there is quicksand and fire and a bottomless pit. God says, I don't change. It's what you need to know. I don't change. For my own glory, for your own good, I do not change. I am not like you. Get that through your head. I am not like you. I think it's interesting, and I know I've mentioned this before. Let me just mention it again as we wrap this up. Psalm 51. It's a great psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of brokenness. It's a psalm of lament for sin. But Psalm 51 is paired in the Hebrew text many times with Psalm 50. In other words, they were read together. They They were inseparable. They used them together. And at the end of Psalm 50... There is the condemnation that leads to the the necessity of repentance in Psalm 51. And here's the condemnation God makes. You thought that I was like you. That's your problem. You thought that I was just like you. Your view of man is so inflated and your view of God is so disgustingly small that you actually thought I was like you. Which leads you to do all sorts of things that are not consistent with my holy name. And as we see David repent in Psalm 51, What David puts on display, yes, is the repentance, the salvation, the restoration that God offers to those who are broken and contrite. But you understand that takes a big God and little people to do that. That's not big people, big God. That's little people, big God. That's understanding who God is. That God is over and above and outside of all of these things so He can forgive and so that He can do that. And that is the flow of Paul's message in Athens as well. Kevin DeYoung said, even though we cannot know God fully, we must know Him truly. In other words, you will never know all there is to know about God. And if you could, He wouldn't be God but you must strive to know Him truly. To know Him faithfully in what you can know. To be accurate about what you say you know about Him. You may not know Him fully, but you must know Him truly in what you do know. John MacArthur says, God's immutability is His perfect unchangeability in His essence, His character, His purpose, and His promises. God is immutable, says R. Duncan Culver. There are no sequences or changes in Him. Time equals sequence equals change. And God is none of that. There's no sequence with God. There's no before and after. Because if there were, there would be some change in that. God is always the same. He's outside of that. He's over Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will never come to an end. That's our God. That's who we have to know, brothers and sisters, in the day that we are living in. And if we do not, it's to our own shame and it's to our own sadness. 
may we have a heart to know God. What does that involve? Taking Him at His Word. Looking at the Word of God and saying, if the Word of God says it, it is true, and I am duty-bound to believe it. How many of us have laughed and poked fun at the saying that we probably all heard? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No. Just take out the middle part. God said it. That settles it. Whether you believe it or not, it's settled truth. You are obligated then to bow the knee to settled truth. To, to acknowledge God as higher and more glorious and outside of and dependent on nothing. And I just cannot wrap my mind around that phenomenal truth. He needs nothing. And he who needs nothing has given everything. In the form of His Son. And we must believe in Him too. Because He also is God. We must bow the knee to this One. Verse 31. This man whom, has been, whom He has appointed. This man whom God appointed. Having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. We must believe that. God's proven it. Now you must believe it. And not only must you believe it, you must call upon others to believe it. You must warn others. There is coming a day very soon when we will be called hateful for proclaiming that truth. We already are. But it will become enshrined and codified in ways that will make it very appealing not to say that. Say it anyway. Paul did. Why did Paul say that? Because he believed who God was. Unashamed, unafraid, bold, convinced, happy, not fearful. This is who God is. This is how you must respond to Him. And this is the path to respond to Him. Through Him whom God proved to you by raising Him from the dead. Repent and believe on Him. That's it. It's pretty simple. It's simple, but it's profound. And it will take you the rest of your as they say in the country, the rest of your born days to try to get to the bottom of this. May God create in us a thirst and a hunger to know Him and to know who He is. His independence, His immutability, His eternality, all of those wonderful, sustaining nourishing truths. That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you. May God make it so. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, how could we ever begin to even enumerate back to You all that You are? You are infinitely wonderful. And all we ask, O oh God, is that You would give us a hunger and a thirst to know You. To lean upon You. To believe You. As we know more of who You are. Not that You're becoming more, but that we're becoming aware of all that You always have been. So help us, Lord, we pray, by Your Spirit. Lord Jesus, let us be faithful in knowing You so that we are faithful in proclaiming You because that is the only hope for the madness and the calamity that You have sent upon our nation. We deserve it. 
because we as a nation have turned our backs upon you. We have mocked you. We have even in our highest positions of leadership invoked the names of pagan and demonic gods. We deserve your judgment and your calamity as a nation. But Lord, would you preserve a remnant of your people long enough and make them loud enough to do what Paul did in a very unpopular, tenuous place, Mars Hill, among all the pagan altars, to demand and call our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our nation to repentance and offer to them this proof. Did you take the next breath? Then there is a God. And this God holds your life in His hands. And He commands you to repent. And He has the authority to do so because He raised His Son from the dead after dying to pay for your gross violations of disobedience to His law. May we boldly stand and say that for the love of you and for the love of others that they too might know this great God. So let your character, let your person be our highest vision and goal. Whatever it takes, Lord, for us to know you, cause that to happen and cause it to happen now so that when the storm clouds gather and the pagans and the heathens rage, as Psalm 2 says, we rest secure. We know who our God is. We pray this, that you would be supremely glorified. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.